0: Blog Talk radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast will dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals and education, and a variety of other disciplines, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So welcome back, everyone, to uh, another week. We had an early uh, broadcast last week due to the Thanksgiving um, holiday on Monday, and now we're here back to our regular time and space on uh, Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'm excited because I have someone who um, has uh, done an amazing piece of work, and here's to discuss um, her latest book, Um, an award-winning journalist and social commentator who has been covering parenting and lifestyle trends. Um, We're going to talk about her latest book and findings. Uh, The book is entitled Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. Uh, so I'd like you to help me welcome Jennifer Wallace. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, so happy to have you so much. And you know, I told you at the beginning that the the 30 minutes goes really fast. So I'm going to jump right in and start asking you some questions because I've read a little bit about uh, your your book and um, that I've ordered. And uh, but mostly some of the uh, results from your from your research that you did uh, about uh, achievement culture and toxic achievement culture. But I'd first like to start because I know you're a journalist and you've been a, a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and some other places. So if you don't mind, give me kind of the the, the short version of so how'd you get here and what made you interested uh, in in this topic specifically.
1: Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, I'm a journalist. I started my career at CBS 60 Minutes, um, where I worked for almost 10 years. And then when I had my kids, I have three teenagers, and I'm raising them here in New York City. Um, And uh, so when I had my kids, I moved over to print. And I've been freelancing for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And, you know, over the years as I've been raising my three kids who are now 18, 16, and 13 – I've been noticing just how different my kids' life, you know, the the pace of their childhood was Mm -hmm. from mine growing up. And I wanted to understand why were things so different? Why were family dinners often hijacked for homework or extracurricular activities? Why were weekends, you know, being pulled in multiple directions for travel, soccer games, et cetera, et cetera? It felt like childhood became sort of this high-stakes adventure. Uh, and so, I wanted to figure out why what what were the the seeds to this uh, achievement culture that I was seeing play out in my own home
0: and mm-hmm. so that
1: 's what really led to the book
0: mm. wow i and and I definitely identify with what you're saying, having children myself that uh were active in a, a number of different places and certainly uh, saw a big difference. I have four girls and saw a really big difference between. Number One and Number Four, by the time they came along, uh what were some of the things you noticed right away? besides that homework was was a very important aspect of what they did what What were some of the other things you noticed?
1: Yeah, it felt like what you know it felt like all areas of their lives um there was this pressure to achieve more and more, even things like when I was growing up playing tennis or Theater, those were sort of stress reducers, stress busters for me. And now I, I saw in my kids and I saw in their peers and then as I was interviewing families for this book that, you know, every win, every game where someone would do well, it became sort of a uh, – the bar just kept rising higher and higher of what achievement looked like and what areas of a child's life, you know, were now – as necessary to achieve Mm -hmm. Um, when I was starting the research for this book I interviewed sociologists and historians and anthropologists um, to find out what what was the difference what was happening in in our world in our environment that was making these changes Um, and I get get into it a bit in the beginning of the book how we got here but the story that resonates most with me is what I call the economic story When I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, life was generally more affordable. Housing, health care, higher education, um, everything was was less expensive. There was more slack in the system. So Mm -hmm. a parent like mine growing up could be relatively assured that, you know, even with some setbacks, some failures, maybe a B-minus in calculus, that most likely I'd be able to grow up and replicate my own childhood, if not do even better than my own parents did. But modern parents today are facing a different economic reality. We are seeing the first generation, uh, the millennials, who are not doing as well as their parents, uh, on average, at, at their parents' age. And we are, as parents, we are feeling the crush of the middle class. We are feeling the steep inequity that's been ushered in over the last few decades and the hyper-competition that comes with globalization. And what I found in talking with families and speaking with researchers is that modern parents are really betting big, Uh, Mm. whether they're aware of it or not. That early childhood success, getting their kid into a quote-unquote good college, they hope will act as a kind of life fest. Yes. in a sea of economic uncertainty but yes. you know unfortunately that life fest is really drowning too many of the kids that we're trying to protect
0: yes and i'm sure you probably experienced some of the same things i did with uh super competitive parents not to mention how that showed up in in their kids but um where i i would hear things particularly in new york city where they they started out as soon as the mother found out that uh, she was pregnant, uh, making reservations at certain daycares or in anticipation right. of a pregnancy. And it's just a world that I never quite understood, but, um, but that they have to get in the right preschool in order to get into the right college. And that mindset was one that took some getting used to hearing People thinking like that, and so I, 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 I think that um, it, it certainly matches what you're saying around this this uh, idea that um, achievement, but being successful, is a kind of life uh, vest in school. But it turns out that it is it, in a lot of ways, it sinks a lot of children too, um, yeah. with with feeling that they. They they won't be anything if they if if they get a B or if they happen not to like a particular subject.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post um, that was I was reporting on two national policy reports, one by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the other by the National Academies of Sciences found that students attending what researchers call high-achieving schools, <coughs> excuse me, those are public and private schools all around the country where, you know, the schools are generally well-resourced. Those kids go off to four-year colleges. The students attending those schools were now officially at risk, meaning mm. they were two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety and depression. Wow. And wow. two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder than the average American teen, and it's because oh. of what you were just saying. This ex- what researchers were calling an excessive pressure to achieve.
0: Oh, absolutely, and and it's not always in in uh, academics. Um, it's in even in things that were intended. I, I think about what you just said about tennis and um, sports that that, it, for some, it had been a place where they could socialize. Uh, I, I just think about um, there was one, one of my second daughter uh, was, was engaged in a um, uh, basketball, kind of a city league basketball team, and um, it was just so funny. I, one of my memories of her doing that was that her and another young girl um, they just would dress out in their uniforms and sit there and just talk and socialize. They didn't care if they got in the game or not <laughs> you know it was just that was their time, and they you know you might you might find but it was it really was, and I know the intent um you know that at least. Uh, on our part was that it was a social event. It was a time to understand how to get along with others and share and play, um, not just be competitive.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, what what you're talking about, uh, what I saw on the ground when I was interviewing hundreds of families for my book was that very often in these very competitive environments, kids feel pitted against each other. So yes. things that used to be buffers in kids' lives, like their peers, like their relationship with their coach, sometimes like their relationship with their teachers who can sometimes also feel pressure to perform. School mm-hmm. districts feel pressure to perform. You know, heads of school feel pressure to perform. They feel like they are held accountable by their board and by their alumni to get the kids into these highly selective colleges. So there is there is so much pressure and it trickles down to our kids. Um, and buffers that used to be in place, you know, stress reducing sports, relationships with peers, you know, just a, a, a relationship with a coach that, that didn't fully focus on performance. Many of those buffers have been Taken up, they've been lifted, yeah. um, and it's exposing kids to stressors without really providing much buffer.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what what do you think it is that makes it drift over into toxicity uh, versus yeah. um, do your best? You know, we were all told do your best, but what, what makes it appear or and feel uh, damaging?
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that because I am. I am not anti-achievement. I am a high achiever. My husband's a high achiever. When I was growing up, right, my our parents wanted us to do well. Um, but achievement, when I was growing up, didn't define me the way it does so many young people today. When it when achievement becomes toxic, is when a child's sense of who they are their worth their sense of self is wildly tangled up in their achievements feeling Mm -hmm. like they they only matter when they achieve they're only of value when they're doing well when they make the a team Mm -hmm. when they get into the college Mm
0: -hmm. so that's
1: when achievement becomes toxic when it's no longer you know something to pursue when it's really uh your sense of self rides with your achievements and with your failures,
0: mm-hmm. 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 and I, um, I, I was just thinking about um, how how many times I've seen and heard uh, whether it's getting into college or, but parents saying that how important this is, but I don't hear as much about the children and their view on on these. Now, for me, uh, whether it is a in a classroom or a on a on a, a competitive sports team, what I don't hear you saying is that um, you you think everyone should get a participation trophy, so to speak.
1: Exactly. Um, but what right. I do,
0: you know, that it's it's not that everyone uh, is is the best and they get all get most valuable player trophies, but exactly. but that. But what is really, really resonated with me just now is when you said that they get their sense of worth and their sense of value from how much they achieve. And I think that is what really needs to be underlined, that that's where it becomes problematic.
1: Absolutely. And I I surveyed, so I, I conducted two large surveys, one Um, With the help of a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I surveyed 6,500 parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And a second survey I did was of 500 young adults ages 18 to 30. Most of the kids were college-age kids. And I asked them about achievement, and I asked them about, you know, how much they agreed or disagreed with, you know, with, um, well, I'd love to read you, if you don't mind, a couple of no, results no, that I got, because I think this no. underscores how achievement becomes toxic. Yeah. So 70% of the young adults, these were mostly college-age students that I surveyed, reported that they thought their parents valued and appreciated them more when they were successful in school. And more than 50% went so far as to say they thought their parents loved them more when they were successful, with 25% of the students saying they believed this a lot, the mm. highest degree the survey allowed. When I asked the, the students whether they ag- agreed or disagreed with this statement, I feel like I matter for who I am at my core, not by what I achieve. of them said they believed this either a little or not at all. So, in other words, one in four students in my survey felt like their achievements, not who they were as as a person, was Mm -hmm. what was most important to their parents. Mm -hmm. That is stunning. Um, the, the, The sociologist Gregory Elliott at Brown has this phrase that, I was constantly reminded of as I was listening to these young people talk about how they felt like their value was contingent on performance. Mm-hmm. And he said, what gets in early gets in deep. Oh, and wow. It, right? How profound yeah. is that? That, yeah. that the, the, this way of thinking, this, this way of believing that love is conditional,
0: that mm. value
1: is conditional, um, getting into these the heads of these young people, it is no surprise that researchers have found that these high-achieving kids are two to three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorder. And that followed them into their 30s, into adulthood. So what gets in early gets in deep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so the work that you're doing, I know that you have – um, a, uh, an organization that you're associated with. Tell me a little bit about the mattering movement, um, because Great. I know that you have, you have toolkits and things. Because I, I, I see this two ways, if not more, but I'm thinking about, so what are the kinds of things that parents, need to know, yeah. understand, and be able to do. And then if we could then kind of pivot and talk about educators. But I'd love right. because when you talked about early, that's exactly it. Is that it's that's where they get their sense of worth is what they hear early and frequently. Yeah. And so that that clearly is where where the parents come in. So so what can parents do?
1: yeah so i i'm so glad you asked this so um let me just quickly talk about what i found in the research of, of, you know okay. the parents who were raising what i call healthy strivers those were kids who were doing well despite the pressures in their environment i they had these young people had about 14 or so commonalities that i detail in the book um but it boiled down to this idea Students who were doing well, despite the pressures, felt like they mattered for who they were deep at their core, away Mm. from their achievements and successes. They felt significant and important to their parents, to their school communities, and to their wider culture. And so mattering is not an idea that I came up with. It's been studied um, in university settings since the 1980s. Uh, Researchers who study mattering say that after the human need for food and shelter, it is the need to matter that drives human behavior for better and for worse. So Mm -hmm. when we feel like we matter, we show up to the world in positive ways. We want to be a contributing member of the family. We want to do well as a student, we want to please our teachers, we want to work hard, we want to give back to the community. But when we are made to feel like we don't matter or when our mattering feels contingent on our performance, two things can happen. We can either turn against ourselves, get anxious and depressed, or we can act out. You know, school shooters are among the most tragic examples. You know, I don't matter, I'll show you I matter. So what I talk about in the book um, are really – how parents and educators. I highlight a lot of schools that are doing this really well, raising mm-hmm. healthy achievers um, mm-hmm. with with low rates of mental health issues as mm-hmm. um, as measured by outside educational nonprofits. So mm-hmm. at the, so educators and parents were reading the book and saying I get this, I want more, I want more. So I co-founded something called the Mattering Movement with um, an educator who has worked at the university level in public schools in New York City as well as uh, at the Trinity School here in New York for a decade, uh, Dr. Sarah Benison. And she and I have created uh, toolkits for parents and toolkits for teachers. Um, And these toolkits really help you know, teachers and they help parents foster these cultures of mattering. What are the messages parents can send kids? What are the, you know, actions that we can say in our homes? So for parents, quickly, I'll say, you know, what's, what seems to be most important is, you know, kids are saturated with messages of achievement in, in the wider culture, in their classrooms. That home really needs to be a haven from the pressure. Home needs to be a place where kids can recover from those constant messaging um, mm-hmm. that they're not enough. You know, home needs to be the one place where you never have to question your worth. So parents who do this well really push back against the messages of society that say you're never enough. Um, mm-hmm. They really reinforce the idea that their kids matter no matter what, and and they are very clear that um, – you know, that their love for their children is unconditional. When we talk about, you know, mattering in school, some of the things we have we have some free resources on the website that teachers can download, you know, of of talking to kids and and having them, you know, ways to, to tell students they matter. So I'll just give you a few phrases that teachers could say to foster this sense of mattering. You know, you say, we bring... You can say as a teacher, you bring so much positive energy and thoughtfulness to our class. When a child is, is out sick, you know, recognizing how much you miss them, that you really mm-hmm. make our classroom feel complete.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you
1: know, really emphasizing that we all make mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, one way to combat, we've been hearing this, this record number of absenteeism mm-hmm. uh, in schools since the pandemic. I mean, mattering is really a way of bringing kids back to school. It's a way of combating that absenteeism. When we tell our kids, our students, we miss your smile, we miss the insights that you bring to what we're talking about. You Mm -hmm. know, the way to make a student feel like they matter is to get them, you know, to get to know them as people, not just Mm -hmm. as students. There Mm -hmm. have been research, uh, researchers have studied mattering at the university level. And they've looked at award-winning professors to see what it is that they do in their classrooms to make their students feel like they matter. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's knowing their name. It's noticing when they're not there. It's appreciating their insights. It's learning from them. Um, Really, on, on the college level, I mean, so many young people are getting to college today with a deep sense of loneliness anxiety and depression they are not engaging uh, on the campus and universities are struggling they are they are bombarded with needs that they cannot always meet um, yeah. and I think what we need to be doing in the high school level and parents and educators could do this and also at the university letter level is to teach young people how to matter on campus we know what engagement looks like on campus, and we know that it leads to positive well-being. And so helping young students learn how to matter on their campus, how to connect with one adult at their school who knows them, who encourages them, who mentors them, but then also engaging them with activities where they can add value. Mm -hmm. Part of mattering is not just feeling valued, but being depended on and relied on to add value back
0: at Mm -hmm. home,
1: at school, in the wider community. That's Mm -hmm. what gives our students and our kids social proof that they matter. They need to know more than just in words that their lives can make a positive impact on the world.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, what you just said is really consistent with uh, the social-emotional learning initiatives I've heard about. Uh, for a number of years now, and when we first started the conversation, and you mentioned mattering, what started going through my head was, I wonder how this is different from belonging. That there's a lot of work mm-hmm. around belonging, yeah. and to me, what's what is at its core here is the the premise of self worth in in mattering. I kept hearing you refer back um, to how one feels. As a part of this, not just being a part or being included, but that um, even in times when they're not um, included that they understand their worth and that is so powerful to you know as a concept um, and and I think that the uh, especially for those who who are involved in this work with in social emotional learning have we have seen Many educational uh, entities are successful uh, in a lot of ways with children reducing anxiety, reducing those mental health uh, uh, challenges because they are paying attention um, to to social development emotional development as well uh, I know there, there are a number of people who who um, uh, opposed, and I'm not saying that they are the majority, but there are people who are saying that those are the things that kids should get at home, that that's not a place for that's not the teacher's role. Um, and this is just one more thing we're putting on teachers. But I would argue that uh, you you become more effective in the cognitive development of a child once you reach them and this is consistent of course with Maslow's hierarchy but but re- reach them uh, at their core of who they are and make them feel that worth that that it it makes your job even easier as a teacher I'm not sure if you you found that when teachers when teachers absolutely. engaged in that that's what happened
1: absolutely it not only made the learning deeper it it gave teachers their own sense of mattering. So, you know, it's very important that the adults in these students' lives also feel like they matter. Um, Mm. I I wanted to make a a point about belonging. So what researchers who study mattering, they call it a meta need or an umbrella term. And under it is feelings of belonging and connection, mastery, self-determination, pride. So, they very much overlap, mattering and belonging overlap. But here's, here's what's interesting is that mattering goes deeper than belonging, right? Okay, you can okay. belong yep. to Classroom 301. You can belong to that class, but you don't necessarily feel like you matter to that class. Yeah, so, yeah. But, so mattering goes even deeper than mm-hmm. belonging does,
0: mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. deeper
1: than connection.
0: Right, and I, I love what you said about the the sense of of contribution uh, that wow. that goes beyond the uh the individual taking but also giving which is something that we we're talking about with regard uh to um current day individualism that so many people are taking it's about me it's mine but then in this case Mattering also uh, has an underlying obligation uh, to to contribute and I think that's beautiful absolutely
1: to feel valued, you also need to add value. Yes. Um, yes. You need that social proof and I just I quickly just want to mention that the mattering movement we are creating um, advisory curriculum for schools, and part mm-hmm. of our curriculum is really going to include teacher mattering, because Uh. we know that teachers are under such stress, enormous stress today. It's such a hard time to be an educator on so many levels, and I am so grateful as the mother of three students that there are teachers in their lives. And so what we really want to focus on is teacher mattering, is building up that sense of value in the teachers in our kids' lives. Building them up so that they can be the first responders to their students' struggles day in and day out. That's mm. how te- te- we need to build up teacher resilience. We need to really spotlight and focus on teacher well-being if we want to help students with their own well-being. Yeah. Um, so anyway, there's a, there's a new book out uh, about that's coming out or just came out about teacher mattering, um, okay. and I just think it's it's such a critical concept.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Well, for those of you who may have joined after we started, um, a beautiful conversation you have to go back and listen to um, with uh, uh, an author and, and journalist, social commentator, um, and Jennifer Wallace. And um, she has written a book, Never Enough, uh, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. So, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much. Are the Please, um, are there uh, any other books or articles? Where can people find you? Social media handles, places where you're going to be where they can support you and follow.
1: Excellent. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also very active on Instagram, at Jennifer Brehenny Wallace is my handle. Um, You know, get the book, Never Enough, and then join us at thematteringmovement.com. Free resources for teachers. Sign up. For newsletters, we'll be giving tips on mattering, how to foster these cultures of mattering. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you again, and I'm going to have to get you—you'll be on the lookout for an email from me. I'll to have to get you over and do a book talk for us on campus. I think this oh, is mostly what our what our aspiring, uh, both aspiring leaders and teachers um, at Teachers College would love to hear about and and get your insight. So. Uh, until we see each other there on campus, go well, stay well.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you.